welcome to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership, management, and delicious Greek food. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pie or Pie Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. I'm into the idea of libraries, the idea of the smell of new books, and watching television. Today on the show, we're doing something a little different, and I will be interviewing Rachel, our host, aka Pie Bob, who is currently working in technical marketing at honeycomb.io. And I thought this would be an interesting way to spend one of these episodes digging a little bit deeper into who you are, Rachel. So welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. And I'm totally going to do this to you at some point in the future. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be entertaining. I'm humbly sure. So, <laughs> so so let's dive in. Talk about your path to leadership management and where you are now, and, and tell us a little bit more about where you are now and and your background. And there's this is a huge question, but you know your your background and leadership, and then how you ended up where you are, and then well, I'll stop there. Yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, we'll just take it from there. Well, my first official gig as a leader was when I was in at university. I led the tutoring and grading and proctoring pool for the astronomy department at my university. So I was in charge of, you know, scheduling. It was basically being a line manager, scheduling, making sure everyone had what they needed, that kind of stuff. That was a long time ago and I barely remember it. <laughs> College was a very long time ago. Yeah, that happens. But my first job where I got paid more than 375 an hour, seriously, 375 an hour to do this to tutor the, you know, the basketball team uh, in physics and math. That first real gig was when I was hired at a company called Critical Path. I was hired to be the manager of their documentation team back in the late 90s. What's a documentation team? So this is a team of technical writers. In this particular case, the majority of the technical writing was internal to help our operations team, our sysadmin team run the service that we offered, which was a hosted email service. And I grew the team from one person plus me to seven to 10 folks and a couple of designers, someone who was into UX and design at the same time. I was there for a little while. And then since then I have done Whoa, whoa, wait, wait a second. Your first gig after like small things, making three something dollars an hour. No, 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 no. It was, no, I'm just saying first job as a leader. I was a technical writer. Oh, gotcha, 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 gotcha. You know, after that, after college, yeah. After college, I was a technical writer at several, at several jobs. Initially, I was uh, writing about Let's see, I went to an R&D company in Southern California that was making CCD cameras for high-end hobbyist telescopes by Mead, and I wrote the documentation for their CCD camera and filter wheel. Wow. Pretty, like, the perfect gig for me because my degree is in astrophysics and English literature. So once I did that kind of stuff, I was like, you know, this is, this is really my kind of thing. I'm going to be a tech writer, that there's actually a job market for that, and I love it. So, yeah, from there I was working and I ended up mostly being a writer for sysadmins, operations staff, people who run large systems, that kind of stuff. Okay. And documenting what what kinds of things? I mean, talk a little bit for the world who doesn't know what technical writing is. I mean, uh-huh. are you writing the documentation for the software they're writing? Are you writing the documentation for how they should do their jobs? What kinds of things are you writing? It's been both. 
but I prefer the kind of thing where you are, it, essentially the audience has always been people who are doing IT, who are doing operations, who are being sysadmins, and nowadays DevOps and so forth and moving up the chain into the developer world because it's all coming together, man. So typically that kind of documentation is either, you know, you're working for a company that makes an enterprise product and that enterprise products audience includes IT folks who have to set it up and run it or configure it or all of those things for their users. So that tends to be the audience I'm familiar with. And then, yeah, from then on, Theron, I've also written lots of customer facing documentation, but I find that less like by customer, I mean like end user folks who aren't necessarily technical, but I find that less interesting to be honest, because it's, it's not like it's easy to do that, but it is pretty straightforward to do that once you understand the most important thing, which is what it is your users need to do and what it is you can expect them to know. And then with, with non-technical folks, <laughs> you don't, you can't expect them to know anything generally. Right. So, you know, that's pretty, pretty straightforward. Start at the very basic stuff. Okay. But with sysadmins, you can be all over the map. Same with developers. They're, they know different sets of things. So you have a lot more to work with a lot more decisions to make. It's more, it's more interesting to make decisions in that case. Sure. Okay. Well, so then back to your, you said your first leadership role, you're, you're growing this team substantially and talk about that and then keep going. I, I have so many questions. This is so interesting already. <laughs> well, I'm glad you think it's interesting. It's like my distant past. So yeah, at this first place, we were writing docs mostly for internal folks who are running the world's first hosted email platform before Google, FYI. And it was also, it was not my first company that we, we went public with, but it was kind of the, my, re, my beginning to end experience with that kind of thing, which was also cool. The company grew really fast and it was a kind of a classic late 90s. I don't even know if there's such a thing as a classic late 90s startup, but you know, we had a chill room. We had a massage therapist come in. We had yoga classes. We had all that kind of stuff when it was important to offer really cool side benefits to, your, to, to hire people. And I was there for four years. And at that point I left because the company had gone public, it was bigger. Um, and they were starting to they were starting to want me to lay off some of my people. And I said I would rather they got to keep their gig if I could leave and go somewhere else. So at that wow. point I went back and forth between well, I'd been there a while and I wanted to try something new anyway. Yeah, still. I mean, you're first all the way up through IPO and then willing to step aside is I'm I'm impressed. Anyways. Keep going. And yeah, and after that I went back and forth between being like a you know senior technical writer or being a senior manager, director, that kind of role in the documentation groups. And that I kept doing until I was at my last job before this one, where I came on board as the director of docs. I built the team up from two people to somewhere in the teens, and then I needed to take a break. I had never had more than two weeks off ever between jobs or anything until that point. So I had told them that I was going to quit. I, I told my boss, who was the, then the VP of support, that I would quit in a year that had been, I had been there for three years. And they came back and said, hey, how about, you know, you try something else? <laughs> how about we hire your replacement and then you can try something else? I was like, okay, that sounds pretty good. And what, what company is this? Are you willing to talk about the company? Oh, yeah. This is Splunk, uh, which is a pretty well-known company in the, sure. um, in the IT operations space at this point, or uh, an enterprise company. Then, and yeah, they, that was a great experience for me, getting to 
design my job from the ground up, which is essentially what happened. They were like, hey, do do whatever seems like a good idea. It was literally what my boss told me to do. Wow. <laughs> There's no passing on that, I don't think. Yeah. And so what did you decide was a good idea? Well, as a as part of my tech writing work and leading tech writers at that at that uh, company, I spent a lot of time online with our users. We initially had an IRC channel on Fnet, yeah, back in the day before Slack happened. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think IRC still exists. But <laughs> IRC definitely still exists, but but yes, anyways. <laughs> yeah, we had this this channel on Fnet, and I was in there Should just. Have been on because, sorry, sorry. Oh no, no, we there was a lot of talk about us being on free, but we were like, well, it's not an open source company, so yeah, yeah you know, it didn't you make sense for us to do it, and we were easier to find on Fnet, but um. But yeah, that was a good place to be because our, a lot of our users were in IT uh, and they liked being on on uh, on um, IRC and talked a lot about their experiences with the product. So I encouraged my team and I encouraged developers to be on there. So we had a pretty good presence in the channel. And over time, it just sort of became a, a, a role with the community, which we didn't have a community team at the company at the time. So I ended up creating a community group and starting user groups program and starting um, an MVP program called the Splunk Trust, which is still going on. Uh, and they elect their users, their members annually. Uh, I built a lot of stuff there and it was pretty cool. And I was there for nine years before um, I started Honeycomb. Wow. And, and so, I mean, what does a community team, I mean, you talked a little bit about the reason I'm asking this is it's something I've thought about, right? Like long-term in the future, what does a community team do? How, how do you get involved in the community? And it sounds like it, it happened a little bit organically for you, but, but tell me a little bit more about that. Like what does a community team do? What's, what's the, maybe the ultimate goal? Is it just to foster the community around the technology? And then, you know, is, is, was Splunk already doing like a user conference and did you start doing that kind of thing or, or maybe talk a little bit more about that. That's kind of interesting. Okay, well, the first thing that you asked, which is, you know, what, what does a community do? That, uh, what's it for? That's the question you need to ask, really, before you start working on on building a community team or, or building sure. a community program. Uh, because there are two basic kinds of community programs. There's the kind where you're trying to get, and it's more marketing-oriented, you're trying to get... Um, uh, influencers, uh, you're trying to get folks to say nice things about your service or your product out in public. Uh, so you kind of cultivate a group of people to do that. Um, and then there's the, t the kind that I was mostly uh, interested in at Splunk, uh, because I worked in, I worked for the VP of support at the time, uh, is, is a support-oriented community where you make it a positive thing for members, more experienced members of the communities to help other people uh, who are trying to come up to speed with the product and help each other out so that you reduce support costs. Um, so I spent uh, <laughs> I spent a good six months reading lots of academic papers and stuff about motivation and how you motivate groups of people. Because you know when you're when you're a manager when you're leading people who officially report to you it's a little different. And, and I, I know that um, Anka in a previous podcast uh, talked about this as well, like motivating volunteers. Uh, is very different from motivating people who actually are paid to work for you. Uh, sure. So I spent some time on this, and that is a it's a useful set of information to have uh, when you're trying to get people to do work for you, and then they don't they don't actually work for you. So the main thing that I spent time on was uh, making it a uh, a cool and core part of the community. Uh, a tenet is we want people to be helpful. We value helpfulness. 
we value helpfulness almost more than just being the smartest person in the room because you know the smartest person in the room doesn't it's not of any use to you unless they're helpful <laughs> sure so so yeah this was uh this the splunk i don't know for a while splunk was kind of had a had a cachet of like uh being cool being kind of edgy and hip and so a lot of a lot of people who are uh who use splunk were sort of into that and wanted to be part of the in crowd so i leveraged that a lot in getting people to help each other out and it it worked pretty well I spent a lot of time on measuring the effectiveness of that. I built a Q&A platform that people used and, you know, we had gamified stuff a little bit so that you could get points and have a leaderboard. Um, and you could really tell when people participate a lot. And that's where I um, selected the first folks to be uh, in the Splunk Trust in the MVP program is how helpful they were both on IRC and then in the Q&A uh, platform. Eventually, we were able to hook that up to our Salesforce implementation, which is where people were filing their support cases, so that you could go and file a support case uh, for support that you were paying for, and then we would, um, based on the question they're typing in, suggest things in the Q&A site on Splunk Answers uh, to see if they their question had already been answered somewhere. And if oh, they cool. had, uh, if they said, if they went away and looked at something, you know, a link or two, and then didn't come back for over an hour, or they specifically clicked a button and said, this answered my question, then that counted as a case deflection. And so we could figure out how much that was saving the company. Um, oh, that's that, yeah, that went up and up. And it was pretty, it was pretty satisfying to see that happen. Yeah, then you're able to like give a monetary, uh, like a very clear business case for the use of this right. group where some people probably see it as more uh, intangible. That's interesting. Yeah, it was super good because community is often this thing that, you know, people think of you as the cruise director, you know, and you're just yeah. throwing little parties for your customers or whatever. And, and I did do a lot of stuff like that, um, user groups work and events at the, um, at the Splunk conference, which we did have a user conference at the time. I ran the gamer lounge where you could play uh, Team Fortress 2 or, um, or other games and have your, oh, there was a Minecraft one later on, which was super cool, where your, your activities were put into Splunk and then you could watch on the, on the, um, in the Splunk UI what was going on. So we had people build apps for that and it was pretty engaging. Uh, but ultimately you still need to show the value. It's not all just flash and, and glad handing. <laughs> you need a, you need people to really see what the benefit of having a motivated and happy uh, community team is. And I was able to do that. Uh, and I was pretty pleased with that as well. So I'm, I'm pretty metrics oriented, metrics driven in a way. In a, in a, probably in a way that business leaders really appreciate. But um, so, so tell me just a little bit at Splunk, what was the thing that I mean, what, what did you like about it? Was it the ability to change and try this new thing? Or like when you look back on it, what was the thing that gets you excited or you're really happy about from that time? Something you really enjoyed or? or... Well, the ability to reinvent myself was pretty great. I was not expecting for my boss to come back with the HR person and go, hey, how about you don't leave? <laughs> I was like, oh, whereas some people are like, I can't believe you told them you were going to quit in a year and they didn't just walk you out. I'm like, why would, why would they do that? I was a value to the company, you know? Um, I mean, sure. Yeah. So, so that was good. But like, the reason I originally went to Splunk is because I could see that the product that they were making at the time 
was really what would make our, you know, my friends who are all, you know, sysadmins and ops folks, it was really going to work well for them. I, could, I knew what they were doing every day and the repetition and the inability to grep across a billion files, <laughs> different, different sure. file systems. Um, you know, look, the world has moved on from there. There's lots of options now, but um, at the time they were way out ahead and I knew that was going to be important. So it was great to work on something like that and have, you know, I, I was able to develop a, a fair amount of, of cred because I knew more than the average tech writer about that particular field. And right. I enjoyed that feeling. I definitely enjoy having cred. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's no, been it's... hard to start afresh <laughs> at a new place because sure. I, I was at Splunk for nine years and I was like, I know everything about this place. Well, you have <laughs> when you've, when you've been established at a place like that, you have significant authority in, uh, in that company, um, you know, amongst not just the people who work there, but also in the community around it. So yeah, I, I understand having to start from zero and that is, is intimidating, but yeah. uh, so then what, what happened after Splunk and how'd you get to where you are now? Well, um, I went on leave, which I had done, uh, previously right before taking the, or growing into the community role. I went on leave and I didn't want to come back full-time. Um, I'm not currently working full-time either. Uh, I wanted to have some time to work on political causes because, you know, the world is going to shit right now. Um, and so wait, I had wait, arranged... Stop for just a second. The Sorry, world... man. I, I hate to break it to you. <laughs> but... Uh, I never read anything about the news. So. <laughs> yeah, I thought everything was fantastic. Sorry, it's okay. Yeah, Continue. you are a white man. It's okay. I'll allow it. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. Wow. Zing. Right at the heart of it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so you got involved in politics and you should stop. You should talk a little bit about that too, because that's kind of a side project for you, right? Yes. Yeah, it is. It is. And, um, and actually, because I started the new gig at, at Honeycomb, I, I had to scale back what I was working on. Um, initially, I got involved with something called um, Mayday.us, which was originally started by um, folks interested in campaign finance reform. Um, but they went in a direction that I didn't care for. And so I um, kind of was looking around for some other things to work on. Um, and I am now involved with and have been for maybe a year, uh, the folks at fivecalls.org. I'm on what, what passes for their editorial board, although I granted have not been um, able to contribute as much as I used to. I answer all, a lot of their email, which is something I can do whenever, which is nice. Um, but that, that group, uh, I highly encourage you visiting their website if you are in the U.S. Um, we put together um, calls about hot issues that we you might want to call your representation in Congress about and give you a backgrounder and a script to use to make it super easy to do. And then you can track what you're, what you're calling about. Um, a lot of people find that useful. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's for people who want to be involved in politics, don't have any idea where to get started. And here's a very tangible, here's the phone number, here's the things to say, find an issue you care about, and here's a way to make an impact. That's kind of what the goal of that is, right? Right, right. And there's, there are um, apps for your iPhone or for Android as well. So it'll, it'll, if you want it to remind you to make your calls, um, you can pick out what you want to call about. Um, and yeah, if you don't even have any, you know, any background information about it, it's a good place to start. Um, and it keeps track of, you know, the calls you've made so you can kind of see what sort of impact you've had. Um, yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Totally okay. Different. Well, it's, so, so you're working at five calls uh, in your time off. And then uh, how'd you end up where you are? 
Um, well, I, uh, I had heard a little bit about Honeycomb um, and I knew a couple of people who worked there, including um, some the CEO, who is someone I worked with at my very first leadership role that I mentioned before at Critical Path, and she was on the operations team. So she and I had not really been close in the intervening time, but she asked me to come in and talk to the team. And uh, I felt that same feeling that I did about Splunk, like this is something new, this this is something that's evolving with the way that systems complexity is evolving. And, uh, you know, my, my peer group, my friends, they need this. People I know who are developers, who work in big teams, people who are in DevOps and are trying to run these big complex systems. I could see the need for this. So I, uh, I picked up a gig and they were gracious enough to let me work part-time, which is what I really wanted to do. So, um, I've been there just over a year. In fact, um, and I was luckily able to, because I, I work from home a lot, uh, and I'm actually currently traveling. So I was away for my first year anniversary, but we have an all hands every Friday. And if it's your uh, honeyversary, uh, you are required, <laughs> well, not, you aren't really required, but you're encouraged to put on the bee Kigurumi suit and have your picture taken. Oh, wow. And I wasn't there. So they photoshopped my face into someone else's picture. <laughs> <laughs> which was highly amusing to me. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's how you got to where you are now, which is helpful. Um, talk about something that you've learned along the way that, I mean, this is, you know, a podcast on leadership and, and you do know, uh, what? I assume you've listened to a few episodes. Oh, um, maybe. But, uh, <laughs> talk about, there. I mean, what's something that's, that's, that's been a really hard lesson or that you wish you knew earlier on, or maybe even a really embarrassing lesson you've had to learn to get to where you are today? Well, to, uh, to make one thing clear, I am not currently, I don't have any reports and I, it doesn't necessarily look like I will have reports at this job, which is fine by me, but that does not mean that I can't be a leader um, and so forth. But well, I agree. That I have... you've, you've been in significant leadership roles previously too. So yeah, I mean, I think a leader is who you are more than it is the specific role you have. But uh... yeah, I tend to agree with that. Um, but things that I have learned a lot about uh, over the years, things that I look back and think, oh, when I see a new leader, for example, a new manager doing the things that I used to do and like, you know, I cringe inwardly and go, oh yeah, I remember when I thought that I had to know everything and never show weakness, those <laughs> kinds of things. <laughs> you, mean, uh, you mean that one week where you believed you had to, or was it longer? <laughs> oh, it was definitely longer. I, uh, I'm definitely kind of a control freak. And so I, I have always had a problem and I still do to this day. Like, I don't like people to know that I don't know what I'm that, that I don't know what I'm going to do next or, you know, that I haven't got a plan uh, that I don't have control over what the, you know, people above me in management are telling me I need to do. Like I, I was very resistant to letting folks know, look, I'm, you know, this is a complicated situation and we need to figure this out rather than I know what's going on at all times. And I'm going to just tell you it's uh, it's an ongoing process. <laughs> Well, so you feel like you've gotten better at that. You, you, you can more, I mean, you, you, you're, you're by self-admitting a self-admitted, my, my English is really working well words? for me, right? Now. Uh, what yeah. Words. Fail? You do words. I don't have to do words. This is your job. No. Um, so it, you, yeah. If you deal with being a control freak, uh, how have you been able to get over that? I mean, you still want to put on that front. So, so what does that look like? Uh, not being well, bad at it. 
It so it, it varies a lot, but in 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 one case or in a lot of cases, it's it's helpful because to not act like you know everything and and are you know unimpeachable um, <laughs> um, <laughs> about. Uh, because it makes you more approachable it makes it makes it possible for you to learn more about your your staff and what they're going through and what they need help with because if you seem like you've got it together and don't have any weaknesses and never have problems figuring out what the hell it is you're doing your team might be might be uh reticent to come talk to you about something they're having problems with sure so um, and it's also, uh, I, I tried to model that behavior when I was running the community. I was very present, especially online. I love to be in chat. <laughs> you may know this about me. Um, I, frankly, I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> I like words and I prefer to type them than talk, uh, to then speak them. But um, Yeah, then talk them out because then you can go back and change talk them out to something that makes sense, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> written words. Anyways, keep going. But yeah, modeling that behavior of like, well, I don't actually know the answer to this, but uh, let's find out together. Uh, that kind of thing has been super helpful in encouraging other people to ask the questions that they have and to work with other people to, you know, discover the answer. Uh, like just just yesterday, I think it was, or maybe the day before, um, I, I run the Honeycomb Twitter feed, the main Honeycomb IO Twitter feed. And uh, we had someone asking about something, uh, asking a technical question, and they didn't know the answer to it. And I went and looked in the docs, and I didn't think it was there. So I got back to the person. I said, hey, I don't, you know, I'm sorry for the delay in getting back to you, but uh, I'm asking for help internally. You know, I, I didn't, I felt it was more important to let the person know <laughs> that uh, yeah. I, we, were, we were looking into it than uh, act like I knew what the hell they were asking about. Sure. Uh, and that tends to be, you know, it's better. Ultimately, you, you develop a trust relationship with your customers, with, with your users when you're, when you're clear with them, like, here's where we are. I don't know the answer, but I'm trying to find it out. And did you get to this point through something, you know, acting like you had it all together and then something horribly embarrassing happening? Or do you, is it just life maturity and humility and getting older and more experienced in your career? Or what, what, what helped get you here? Yeah, I don't think I have an entertaining story about like falling on my face that I can think of. Like I have definitely fallen on my face on a few occasions, but I, I not necessarily about that. Um, but no, it's just been like, I just got, I saw that you got better results from being more open with your team. You, you're not apart from the people who report to you or the people who depend on you for support. You're with them. You're part of a team right. with them. And so you share you know, you have to do it within limits. You can't just be like, oh my God, the world's on fire constantly. You have to have some stability, but um, you don't, you don't, you get more, you get more, uh, you know, get a more in-depth relationship with them, more trust with them if you're willing to show that you don't always know everything. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting and helpful. So, so a question you like to ask, uh, are you an introvert or an extrovert and how does it affect your work? I think you've shared a little bit about this on a previous uh episode but talk a little more in depth about it um yeah i'm definitely an introvert uh i used to be way more extroverted or just I, but i think it was more from a feel fear of missing out i used to always want to know what every yeah you know, what was going on all the time so i wanted to be present all the time with other people when something was going on but as i have gotten older i've become much more introverted and i need more time to myself i'm much more effective if i am away from a group of people and interacting them with them from the outside for the most part, which is, I find odd, but it is just, I, I don't know, I have more energy for it. 
So how does that affect your work? Does that mean that you need to, I, I mean, perhaps this goes back a little bit to the written word and not needing to be answering right on the spot, uh, present situation, irony, not excluded. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> right. Well, so I mean, like you need it, just being separate and being maybe even able to interact via text in something like Slack or IRC. Uh, you know, does that give you the capacity to, to, to take your time and thinking on things? Is it like, is it the physical removal from being around the loud, obnoxious people? Also present company excluded. Uh, you know, what, what helps? Um, it is more about just physically not having to present myself to other people in the room. I, I, for example, uh, yeah, so it's not that I can't answer immediately a question or talk to someone, right? You know, I, I am constantly typing in Slack. I'm constantly responding, engaging, using stupid emoji, whatever it is. I love that stuff. It's great. It's another layer of communication that I have available to me. Uh, I find it fascinating. And if I ever have time to study the linguistics of emoji use around the world, I totally will do that. Um, but uh, it is more about like not having to... I don't know. I feel I feel much more comfortable when I'm not physically there. Uh, I'm relaxed. I don't have to, you know, I mean, it's not like I don't want to wear pants or anything. I, I know that's an issue for you. We can talk about that later. But uh, it's just just having to be presentable and present and present in the room is some there's some stress there that I find just completely gone and allows me a lot more energy if I'm not having to do it. And does that does that translate to video call when you when you have to be on a video call? Does it feel the same way that you're you also have to be present in the room or is that different too? It's somewhat lessened with the video call. And I honestly, I tend to just turn off the video once, you know, once I start, uh, I'll start a call with video and, you know, do the introductions and greeting and hi and whatnot. Um, but then I turn off the video camera unless it's just me and one other person. Mm -hmm. um, because it, I just find it distracting. I, I, uh, I'd rather just talk and listen. And if I'm watching, I'm watching for someone's response, or I'm worrying that they're like looking at me and like, oh my god, they can see straight up my nose or whatever it is. I, I don't know what the specific thing is, but I, I get less. I have less available to me to to think about what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. Well, so then. Talk about your relationship with authority now and and how you feel about having authority over others. You're, you're not currently in a position having direct reports, but you have been before. Uh, and then how do you feel about having others have authority over you? And then in a minute, and I want you to remind me, I want to pivot to how this relates to the TSA. Oh, okay. Um, backstory. Uh, so... I, I'm not super comfortable with authority over others. Uh, it's, it, for, in the case of, you know, I have direct reports, it's a huge responsibility. I take it very seriously. Um, I, uh, I got this great uh, quote from uh, my former boss uh, who, who, at Splunk who used to say, I work for your resume. Like I, I, want, I want the people who work for me to, I wanna leave them better than I found them. Sure. Um, and I want to make sure that they have everything they need to be successful. And it takes a lot of bandwidth and understanding and investigation. Um, and it's a huge responsibility. I feel it very keenly uh, when I have to, when I've had to uh, fire someone or put them on a performance improvement plan, like I wouldn't sleep for days. It's just so serious that uh, I find it very difficult to 
um, to do that constantly, which is one of the reasons that I did went back and forth between being a manager of people and being an individual contributor um, through my career. Not sure. only does it make me feel like I have a better clue about the kinds of work that I would be overseeing if I were managing people, uh, you know, keeping up with the technology, keeping up with the trends in how, how documentation teams work and stuff, but it also gave me some respite between those jobs where I was in charge of people's career development, which is huge. I don't think right. a lot of managers think about that enough. Uh, that, you know, the idea that someone's going to be at a different gig later on. <laughs> you, uh, right. you don't talk about that, right? It's still kind of taboo, even though it's been decades since people really spent the kind of time that I did at Splunk. You know, people yeah. tend to be at companies three years, maybe four years is, is a long time. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, tech, the average is 18 months or something, yeah. It, it's still like back in the day when you were at IBM for 40 years. It, it, you, you, we still treat talking about the next job as being somewhat taboo. Yeah. Um, and I don't like that. I think that it is, it's, it's a, just an unreasonable constraint. So uh, that part of it is, is stressful to me. I want to make sure people, you know, and, and people themselves aren't often thinking about, you know, my, my staff themselves aren't often thinking about their next job, and I want them to. Right. Not like, okay, I'm going to go leave immediately, but uh, that, that there are things to be gained from working at a company, not just getting paid. So that's the, that's the, how you think about having authority over others, but what is it like for you when someone, you know, what's your relationship to people having authority over to, over you and how do you, and maybe as a control freak, how do you react to that? I actually, well, I mean, it depends very much on who it is. Uh, I've been very My lucky <laughs> Pardon me, say that again. I said that's a minor detail. Who, 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 <laughs> who it is, it tells me what to do. Uh, I've been very lucky with that. And I've uh, generally had a lot of respect for the people who uh, that I report to. So that's not been an issue for me. But um, I tend to actually like it when someone is very clear about what it is they want me to do. Uh, that last gig at Splunk, the, the community management stuff, was really uh, satisfying. And I learned a lot. And uh, I'm glad I did it. But it was hugely draining in the sense that I was the one coming up with here's what our strategy should be about uh, how we um, how we how we manage our community here's why it, we should have one and an official capacity uh, here's what our program should be and I was able to bring in um, some external consultants and um, get some advice about how these sorts of things go at companies that already have community work but it was pretty draining and stressful to be the one having this vision um, and sure. coming up with what, what was important to do. And so I, that's why I spent so much time doing research. Um, I, I probably don't act fast enough for the modern uh, you know, tech company kind of thing. I, I like to really know that something is going to succeed before I go there. Yeah. Uh, it's not necessarily a visionary type of thing. So to me, I'm much more comfortable with, here's your responsibilities. Here's how, uh, you know, here's what your job is about. And here's where the, res the results I expect to see. Yeah. Uh, I tend to not have problems with that, especially when it's negotiable, when I can, like, especially this job right now that I have, I am in technical marketing. In a sense, I was kind of doing that already um, at Splunk because ultimately marketing took over the community group and, and um, we did a lot of, uh, influencer marketing, blogging stuff. After all, even though it was a, largely a support community, we were able to get some of that out of there as well. Um, but uh, this that I have now, I'm in technical marketing, and um, I have not done that before. And I've been able to ask my boss, 
what is the point of this thing that I'm writing? <laughs> I'm writing yeah. this ebook. What is it for? How much effort should I put into this? Sure. Um, and having that person explain to me what the goal is. Well, the goal is technically to get people to sign up to read it so that leads will go to sales. And I was like, oh, well, that, that context makes it much easier for me to understand what to do. Uh, so yeah. as long as I can get that kind of context, I'm perfectly happy having someone tell me what to do. Yeah, that's, well, that's helpful. So then, uh, so part of the reason I asked the TSA question is I, I know that you recently took a train all the way across the United States and a boat away from the United States. And I think if I remember right, part of it is related to dissatisfaction with the TSA. And is there, is there an authority, <laughs> you know, that's, that's people who have authority over you that maybe you don't want to, or, you know, talk uh -huh. about that real quick. So yes, uh, I did in fact, and I have done this repeatedly actually, um, I've got about 40,000 long haul miles on Amtrak. I've been back and forth across the country on Amtrak at least a dozen times. I think it's more like 15 or 18 times to get, you know, to get from West Coast to East Coast and back. Um, the reason that I, and I haven't, I haven't flown commercially from within the U.S. since January of 2010. Um, I've flown wow. back into the U.S. from other countries, uh, which I will be doing again. In fact, I've done that once and I'll be doing it again um, in October back from Dublin to the U.S. Um, but my reason is that I object to the TSA. Uh, not, not that I personally find them odious, although, you know, it's not great to be searched. But I, I believe that it's a violation of your civil rights to be searched um, so thoroughly when there is no, no reason to believe that you're guilty of any crime. So I'm lucky, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm lucky enough that uh, my jobs have not called for me to travel quickly. Like if I was in sales, this would just be not possible, right? So I'm right. very lucky to be able to make my eccentric stand in this way uh, and take the train where I'm going uh, because you can still get on Amtrak. Like this last time uh, I was on, there's two main trains you have to take to get from the West Coast to the East Coast. You take uh, the California Zephyr, which goes from Oakland to Chicago. And then you take either uh, the Capital Limited or the uh, Lakeshore Limited to get to Washington, D.C. or New York, respectively. And for this trip and for most of my other trips, you know, I buy the ticket in advance. I buy a little compartment. So I have a little sleeper car container, a little tiny container for me. Um, and they don't even check your ID. You get on, you know, you, you show up uh, maybe 20 minutes before the train. And uh, you go up to the person, your car attendant, who's in your car, and they check that your name is on the list. And, uh, and then later on, a conductor comes by and just looks at your ticket. But only a few times have I been asked for ID. And I think that's totally reasonable. Like, you bought a yeah. ticket in advance. I would be happy to, I'd be okay with having my luggage x-rayed, like, you know, and walk through the metal detector like you used to do at the airport. Yeah. Um, but this whole, you know, physical pat down or being ex having your having your clothing x-rayed having every possible part of you searched it's not it's not okay with me so that is the reason <laughs> i used to make them uh i used to make them pat me down every single time and um i've actually found at most airports there's a way that i can get through security without having to go through the x-ray thing there's there's almost always a line that just has the metal detector and I try to work my way over to that now, but that's, that's yeah. interesting. 
you've taken it a step up for sure from from what I do. Yeah, um, people have been telling me that it, that stuff is getting better. You know, people more of the airports are saying, you know what, we're not doing this anymore. But uh, it's still, I want that. I want that whole process to go away. Oh, I, I I get it. I think it's a ridiculous thing, and I'm I'm pleased that there's people working hard to protest it, uh, even if I'm not carrying my weight. But uh, yeah, well, you do tend to need to be places faster than I do. <laughs> a little little bit sometimes, yeah. Well, so so how has been how has your history of being a leader affected your personal life uh, at home or or you know with friends, uh, positively or negatively? Hmm. I've always been kind of the, well, let's do this thing kind of person. So I don't know that it has changed my, my personal life a whole lot. Uh, I think that becoming a more mature manager, becoming a more mature leader and not always having to get up in the middle of things and be, you know, not worry about missing out as much, not worry so much about knowing everything. Um, that has improved my quality of life a great deal. Like not having to get into every Twitter fight because I know a thing. Uh, <laughs> super helpful to my blood pressure and probably to the blood pressures of the people I love. So um, that's been a benefit to me, just just becoming more of a grown-up. Sure. Okay. And uh, what's what's next for you? What's the long term look like for Rachel Perkins? Are you 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 have a is something you didn't talk about? You have a background in DJing. Are are you going to end up back in music? Are you going to you know wh- where do you see yourself ten years from now? Uh, still doing technical writing or or sitting on the beach sipping margaritas or uh, somewhere in between? Well, uh, well, with respect to the DJing thing, I really pretty much only have one DJ gig a year anymore. Um, uh, my my husband and I both DJ at DEFCON, the hacker conference that just happened in um, Las Vegas last month. Um, we've been DJing there as part of Soma FM. Shout out Soma FM. Highly recommend you check them out. Uh, many web, web radio stations for your listening pleasure. Um, but we have a DEFCON station. And when DEFCON is on, we're there live uh, DJing in the chill out room. Um, so I, I don't really see myself, you know, playing the big clubs in the future. <laughs> I think that's, but that's something much what, you've done in the past. Uh, I played more underground chill out parties back in okay, the day. Okay. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. I didn't actually know. So, um, so <laughs> I did play anyways, at the marquee club in Vegas once, but it was totally for a company party. So it doesn't count. Oh, that's still pretty cool. Um, so you said you don't see yourself going back to the big parties and then I interrupted you. Where, where do you see it going? Um, I, I am, I'm winding it down. Like I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm old, although I do say that all the time because let's be frank, 48 years old in the tech industry is considered old. Um, but I have been very lucky. Splunk was very successful. Documentum was successful. That was my first real startup. Um, and lots of my other companies have been acquired or had other, some sort of liquidation event. So I'm, I'm lucky enough that this may be my last job, this job at Honeycomb. Um, I am here because I, I see value in the product and I really enjoy my colleagues. I enjoy having influence in this area. Uh, I enjoy the writing a lot um, and learning new, new audiences is super cool. But I may, you know, I may be here for a while and then not do something after that. I may become more politically involved uh, depending on what happens in November, uh, I may d- decide to do that sooner rather than later. Um, but uh, I don't know what that would look like, by the way. I'm not an American citizen, so I can't 
run for office. And in a way, I'm kind of grateful for that. Because Wait, I, did, I didn't know that. Where are you a citizen if you're not an American citizen? I'm a British citizen. I was born in England and I'm a permanent resident in the United States. Okay. How long have you been yeah. in the States? I've been officially living in the United States since 1981. I've been there okay. a long time. And uh, I, you know, various members of my family have a uh, joint citizenship at this point. It used to be a lot harder to get joint citizenship right. uh, with Britain and, and, uh, and the U.S., um, and I, I <laughs> something had happened when I was in high school kind of set me against doing it at the time. And I've been kind of immature about it the, the rest of the time, um, <laughs> which is that I qualified for girl state. And then um, I was told at the last minute, oh, you're not an American. You can't go. And I also got a national merit scholarship taken away from me. So it was two things. Wow. Wow. They were like, because oh, you're you not an American. Were... Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So, and I didn't you know, know that at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've just made. I didn't make the choice to do it. Um, and, but now I'm, I'm still able to have, even though I can't vote, I'm able to have influence with my money and with my time. And I actually think that's more valuable uh, for me uh, than, than just having a vote. I mean, obviously I could have both, but. Yeah. Well, you're heavily involved in us politics in a way that not there's, there's a surprising few number of us citizens that are. Uh, so more and more these days though, people should, people are running for office. Right. Right. Yeah. Things are, things are starting to change and, um, that's pretty interesting. Okay. Well, so, and one thing I wanted to ask that I didn't get deep into is, is besides the politics stuff, um, what are your hobbies outside of work? What keeps you, you you mentioned cheese and wine and in the opener. Oh, Um, whiskey. Yeah. Whiskey. I Uh, was waiting. You've said it a whole bunch. Still got it wrong. Uh, <laughs> I do like wine too. Um, I am a hobbyist cheese maker. I've been doing that for. Uh, oh, you make it. You don't. You yeah. don't just enjoy it. Okay. What yeah, kinds yeah. of cheese? Uh, a lot of different kinds. Um, it's pretty easy to make cheese, to be honest. Um, and making a soft cheese is a lot easier than making hard cheeses that you have to press and age a lot, because you have to maintain the conditions for that, and it's difficult to do that at home. Um. But uh, I, I think I'm best at making a triple cream uh, brie style cheese that I call Hausnes Savarin, as opposed to Briat Savarin, which is a particular kind of cheese named after a, a very famous gourmand and food writer. Wow. Hausnes is the name of the house that I live in in Oakland. It's, I've lived there for more than 20 years, and so it, it needed a name after a while. <laughs> the, Un- name. And the unspeakable is- Hausnes of Oakland. There you go. And is this a cheese that you spread on crackers? You most definitely can. It's uh, it's not a firm cheese, but it, it will not just melt all over the place right off the bat. So you can eat it without crackers if you want. It's very okay. silky. It's like a brie, but it's like if brie and butter had a child. <laughs> okay. And then uh, do you still play muds in your spare time? We talked a little bit about this in the episode <laughs> with Matt Newkirk, but tell me tell me a little bit about that. I uh, I don't really play on the mud at this point. I'm um, I'm what on this particular uh, mud, which is the it's actually a moo. So it's a multi-user dungeon object oriented, which is like two acronyms unpacked. It's uh, a programmable mud. Um, okay. I I don't really play on it anymore. I'm what's known as a chillman, which means I'm an admin, but I don't actually admin the users that play my friends made and continue to build this mud and I'm just hanging out there with them in the admin area. So I wouldn't say that I play them anymore. <laughs> okay. 
but that's it's i mean is this something that led to your love for online chat etc totally yeah one of my first experiences with uh online interaction besides usenet oh god usenet um (laughs) was uh was being on a on a mud called angst mud and uh and then, um, but my first one was Lambda Moo, which was one of the very first ones that was run at Xerox Park as a social experiment in a lot of ways. Wow! And it was a it was pretty famous back in the day. And when I first was on it, you may have seen a total of you know fifty people, maybe two hundred at peak on at any given time. Um, but now it's I don't know what it's like now, but then in at its at its biggest it was way bigger and you could not get a full list of people on at a time because it was too much processing time to show that to you and Um, angst mud is where people went to go fight away their angstiness Uh, it was a mud that was created by uh one of the admins i believe of uh the usenet news group called alt angst that i was prominently in when i was younger said a lot of things that i probably regret at this point um i was pretty angsty when i was in college (laughs) at least it's still public and searchable all of that oh it is yeah it is (laughs) i uh i uh, i will own everything that i've done even though some of it's probably pretty awful the good news is very few people will probably go back and search but uh well now they're gonna (laughs) (laughs) well so uh i think i mean i don't think i have anything else to ask is there anything that i'm not asking that i should be asking oh goodness i don't know uh i think this is this is plenty to go on (laughs) people go back and search the usenet archives now (laughs) sure well and then where can people find you on the internet so uh, I'm mostly, well, I'm trying now to be active on Mastodon, and I am uh, pybob on mastodon.cloud, but I don't know where that's going. I'm not sure that that's the model that we need, but it was, yeah, I'm definitely appreciative of an effort to move away from a centrally managed and therefore uh, centrally allowing in Nazis and racists uh, platform, but you can still find me on Twitter. <laughs> you don't believe everything Twitter's doing is good, is what you're saying, man. I this think having issues. <laughs> uh, yeah, person. like I said, it's a shit show. Um, <laughs> but I'm at DJ Pybob on Twitter, and I am D- I am Pybob P I E B zero B on Instagram. Okay. Well, great. Well, thanks for letting me just dig in a little bit deeper with you and. Oh, it's going to be your turn soon, man. So be ready. Right, right. I will prep all the things and be as boring as I possibly can. Uh Um, I don't think that's possible. (laughs) Well, thanks for being with Rachel. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. This was totally fun.